you're new with us, we're studying the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs is wisdom literature that gives us divine wisdom on a number of things, uh, primarily, though, uh, upon marriage. And marriage is one of the Bible's mega-themes. We see it at the beginning of the Bible, running through the Bible, and then escalating into, at to the end of the Bible as we read about Christ and His bride, the church. So essentially in this series, we are both gleaning wisdom and gazing upon Christ. And today we come to the central place in the book. The couple has been anticipating their lives together as husband and wife, and now we come to the wedding day. At the opening chapters, we looked at how they expressed their love for each other, their desire for each other. Last week, we looked at the, the setting, that it was springtime, love was in the air, and today we come to the wedding and the wedding night. And so, let's pray together, because we'll need some help here. Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you for this incredible book of the Bible, and for all of the layers of depth and beauty that we find in it, uh, how we see God's good design for the world and how we see uh, just this foretaste of the union between Christ and His church. And I pray that today that you would satisfy the longings of our souls and point us to the only one who can, and that is Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, as a pastor for uh, nearly 20 years now, I've had the privilege of performing a number of weddings, and a few of them stand out. Uh, while I was pastoring in New Orleans, a couple asked me to go to Key West and do their wedding, uh, so I had to say yes. Uh, as, as I performed this wedding, we were standing on the beach, barefoot on the sand, lady playing the harp over to the side. It was, it was a really, really beautiful, uh, simple wedding. At a different wedding, I was in the middle of my message when the bride looked at me and told me to hurry up. Uh, she, she did it motioning with her hand. I looked I look down at her, and she goes... Uh, so I did. I went immediately to the vows and, and, and signed their papers. But she, she told me that uh, she was really hot. She was about to faint. She was tucked into that dress. She was in high heels. The lights were on her. Uh, and so it's, it's a good reminder to anybody that does a wedding to keep it short. Um, there, there are a lot of issues going on there. Um, probably the most unforgettable wedding for me, though, was my friend Benji, who got married in Jacksonville, Florida. You can't really explain Benji. You have to experience Benji. He, he, he looks like he fell off, off the turnip truck, as they say. High country accent, high pitch accent, a brilliant Bible teacher. He's also a pastor. And we're at his wedding, and they played the music for the bride to come down the aisle, and we're all standing at the, staring at the back door, and she never comes in. <laughs> and so it just turns into this awkward moment. The pianist keeps playing and then eventually stops playing. And Benji looks at me, and he's like, what do we do? He said, he said, you want to, should I have all these people sit down? And I was like, I, I have no idea. I don't know what's happening right now. And so he's like, where is she at? Where is she at? And apparently uh, she was in a back room and no one came to get her to tell her it was time for, for the wedding. And so she eventually did come down the aisle and it, it was a beautiful wedding, except for the part where Benji couldn't stop laughing in the middle of the vows when he pledged all his worldly goods. Uh, which didn't, you know, it wasn't much. And I, I think that's what, that's what got him tickled. I'll never forget that, that wedding. Today we're looking at an unforgettable wedding. It's a royal wedding. We read of King Solomon and his entourage, and in chapter 4, we didn't read it, but we'll get to it in a moment, his beautiful bride. Now many today remain fascinated by royal weddings. You recall how millions of Americans got up early to uh, watch the, the, the uh, wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton. They wanted to see every detail. 
Well, I think the reference here to Solomon is, is most likely symbolic, as we've talked about before. We know Solomon's history. I think this is showing the king as he should be. And it's elevating marriage to show its true grandeur. You might say it this way, that every time a godly couple gets married, there's something royal about it. It's a royal marriage, even if there are a few blunders along the way, <laughs> even if the bride shows up a little late or, or whatever. When one of God's sons and one of God's daughters get married, it's something special, it's something sacred. And further, we've said in our study of Song of Songs that the text is working on multiple levels. It's not just about marriage. It's also about God's relationship with his people. And I don't think it's arbitrary to, to say that. I think that the text itself gives us these kind of clues, these kind of pointers to the, the fact that there's something going on beyond uh, just the, the union of a man and a woman. And this is one of those texts where that is brought out very clearly to me as the king arrives with the language of the exodus from Egypt. And in chapter 4, he describes the bride's beauty with the language of the Garden of Eden and the language of the promised land. These are clear pointers to the analogy of God's love for his people and patterns that point ahead to Christ and his church. Because we could say that no marriage is as good as the promised land or the exodus. And what this text is saying, in effect, then, is that marriage is pointing to something beyond itself. It's pointing to the gospel. The Exodus was that great Old Testament picture of the gospel, the good news that God brought his people out of bondage and took them to the land flowing with milk and honey. And these were shadows of the greater Exodus that Jesus would do for us and the greater promised land that he's given us in a new creation. So whether you're single or married this morning, there's not only wisdom here for us, there is good news. We are united to a king greater than Solomon. We behold the grandeur of Solomon, and we step back and say, what must it be like when Jesus Christ comes again? The great philosopher Chris Rock once said, you can be married and bored or single and lonely. Ain't no happiness nowhere. Well, I would like to introduce Mr. Rock to Song of Songs. This couple ain't bored. And because of Jesus, we are never left alone, whether married or single. Now let's look at this text with three features. First of all, the king's glory. That's the passage we just read. Secondly, we'll consider the bride's beauty. And then thirdly, we'll look at the couple's joy. The scene shifts in verse 6. It goes from a private setting. If you were with us last week, uh, the, the bride goes out searching for her husband-to-be, finds him, takes him to her mother's bedroom, and it's a private setting. And now we move publicly to this, this royal procession. As the text begins with this question, what is it that's coming up from the wilderness, like columns of smoke? What's coming up is a royal procession. And the language of the wilderness, again, is, is calling to mind the Exodus, a time of deliverance. There's also a time of testing that may uh, uh, relate to the, the, the bride's difficulty, her testing in the opening chapter. She wants to be with this guy, but it's not, it's not uh, time yet. She's had some difficult experiences. She's went out into some dangerous places in her dream, searching for the guy. But she'll be in the wilderness no more when he comes to get her. Columns of smoke is reminiscent of the Exodus with the pillar of cloud and the fire that led Israel through the wilderness, the smoke that wrapped around Sinai as Yahweh came down. The great king is coming in that kind of power and glory for this bride. 
perfumed with myrrh and frankincense. You can, you can see that uh, in Exodus 30, 22 to uh, 38. The tent of meeting, the Ark of the Covenant, the utensils of Aaron and his sons. Uh, all, that language is all connected to uh, th- uh, that sacred work that was happening there. So things look good, they smell good, and things are sacred, things are holy as he's coming up out of this wilderness. Similar to the Magi, when they saw Jesus, they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, all gifts fitting for a king. Solomon is coming as a king, and he's going to treat his bride as a queen. He will honor her and cherish her as God did for Israel and as Christ does for the church. And we as a church have a shepherd king who's promised us something even greater. And he gave us not a ring to assure us of his love, he gave us his cross. He gave us a historical demonstration forever that we are held in his love. He's brought us out of a greater wilderness through that redeeming love. Well, that's verse 6. Verse 7, we read of the glory of this procession. Behold, it is the litter of Solomon, or better, the, the bed of Solomon. Think of a portable bed, beautifully decorated. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel. He's got 60 bodyguards. 60 trained soldiers ready to pounce on anyone who comes after the king to try to assassinate him. This speaks of the protection that the groom will give to the bride. Previously, the bride was fearful over certain things, fearful when she went out into the city to look for the king, but now she will, she will not need to fear any longer because Solomon with all of his mighty men will be there with her. And there's the mention of his carriage, It's some kind of cart, like a a box-like vehicle, and it's carried on poles, right? It's like his own personal ark, his own personal tabernacle. those, Those symbols of God's presence being with his people. He's coming like that, and we read of cedar. He got the cedar from Lebanon to build the temple. Silver, gold, and purple were mentioned frequently in the tabernacle instructions. And it's inlaid with love. It's made with love and care and probably signals the love and romance that will be experienced by the couple. People would have been stunned by this sight as he is carried up to Jerusalem, the king in his glory. Hamilton summarizes, Just as Yahweh came out of Egypt, residing in the tabernacle over the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, Born along by the poles on the shoulders of the priest, preceded by a pillar of fire and cloud, Solomon comes up like a column of smoke from the wilderness in a box-like covered moving tent carried on poles that rests on the shoulders of those who serve him, surrounded by his special forces, arriving in the great city of Jerusalem for the consummation of the covenant. So again, it's a beautiful picture of man and woman, this royal wedding, but it's also signaling this overarching message, this greater message of God's union with his people. It's amazing poetry. There's a buzz in the air. Everything is positive. The singer is celebrating the great King Solomon as he should have been. And we're filled with expectancy as he goes now to meet his bride. And we can't help but to imagine the scene where Jesus comes, from his, comes for his bride arrayed in glory. We could borrow the language even of this song. What is this that comes up from the heavens? It is the Son of God, the King in all of his beauty coming for his people. The daughters of Jerusalem are called to look intently on Solomon, verse 11. He's wearing a crown that his mother placed on his head. It's a glad day. It's a joyful day. 
And so we see the king in all of his beauty, the king in all of his glory, coming for his bride. Secondly, we notice the bride's beauty, verses 1 to 15 in chapter 4. The attention now shifts to the bride, as it usually does in the wedding. At some point, everybody is to face her. This is the here comes the bride moment of the Song of Songs. And when the king sees her, he does what most grooms do when they see their bride. They, they are in awe. It's kind of like when Adam sees Eve, he has to write her a song. He can't just speak, it's, it's poetry. He says, wow, in Hebrew, right? Just a very loose translation as he's just <laughs> captivated by her. That's what happens here. This guy praises seven aspects of his bride, which were to him like the seven wonders of the world. Using the language of the garden and the language of the temple, he begins to admire her bodily beauty, and he is floored by it. Behold, you're beautiful, my love. Behold, you're beautiful. And then he gets specific, and he works his way at the top. First, he says, your eyes are doves, innocent, pure, luminous, behind your veil, a, a wedding image. And then he adds, your hair is like a flock of goats. <laughs> Come on, somebody. <laughs> you, you probably don't want to use that as a pickup line, guys. I, I'm just guessing. Um, you don't want to name this as your salon, the goat shop. But you can imagine, if you're, if you're from a distance and you see uh, a herd of black goats coming down a mountainside with the sun glistening on their black hair, that would be beautiful. Up close, probably not. You would see them all in all of their goatiness. But, but from, from a distance, you would say, that is beautiful. And that's what he says about her hair. And then he moves to her teeth. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes. <laughs> that have come up from the washing. All of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost its young. Again, not the way we talk today, but fitting then. Your teeth are as white as a flock of sheep at shearing time. You have great teeth. She has all her teeth. That's what it says. Not one of them has lost. To, to us, it may not be a big deal, but back then, before you had, you know, dentists and uh, all, all of the technology, you, it was very common to lose your teeth. So he's impressed with her goat-like hair and her sheep-like teeth. And he goes on to describe the rest of her face. He says, your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. It's red. It's shapely. It's full of life. It's ready for romance. Again, not, not, not a boring passage of Scripture. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Even your veil cannot conceal your beautiful face. And he moves down to her neck. Your neck is like the Tower of David, <laughs> built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of the, them shields of warriors. She stands tall and elegant and <laughs> strong and dignified. She is adorned with necklaces that remind him of shields. I better get some water. because <laughs> He goes below the neck. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. He stops, verse 6, I'll let you exegete that, to stare and to sing. 
until the day breathes and the shadows flee. I will go to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. He sings now of the great pleasure of being with her, the sweet mountain, this scented hill. And he summarizes, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Now, we know what the, he wants to do at this point, and so he invites her poetically into that uh, arena. His singing turns into wooing as he says, Come with me uh, from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinner and Hermon, from the den of lions, from the mountains of leopards. What's this about? Well, he's, these are dangerous places. So he is offering her refuge, saying, come away from these dangerous places. And he then compliments her activity, wooing her again. He starts with her eyes, but he doesn't end there, saying, you have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. He's hopelessly in love with her. You notice how he calls her his sister and his bride. Now today, that would also be strange. Unless you're from Kentucky. I'm kidding about Kentucky. <laughs> I'm from there, that's why I say that. No, but he's captivated. You notice this is not lust, this is love. Notice the emphasis in verse 10. How beautiful is your love? How much better is your love than wine? So it's not just her body that he's interested in. The phrase sister means that there's a relationship, there's friendship, there's companionship. You are my bride and you are my companion. And that's what makes the joy so wonderful in this story is that this is not a hookup. This is a man and a woman in covenant relationship who are close to each other, who have deep companionship together. He speaks of her lips that they drip nectar. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. I'm not sure if there's an essential oil that's called the fragrance of Lebanon, but I think that would be a good one uh, as this text is filled with images of Lebanon, these places of great trees and great uh, scents. And you see here that he's calling her his bride. This is the context again, and he, it is appropriate for her then for him to talk about her at, with her body being as that of the promised land. Promised land was, was obviously a place of promise, it was a place of commitment, it was a place of pleasure. She will be to him a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, up until now, this couple has given, uh, kept themselves pure before marriage, and that's why the king likens his bride's body to a private garden. Notice 13, or 12 rather, a garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. In the ancient Near East, you didn't have public parks the way we have them today, so if, you, if there was a garden, it was a place of privilege, and it was kept under lock and key. And he likens her body to a garden that has been locked. And he mentions all of the fruit and all of the, the spices that have been previously mentioned in the book to liken that to her body, a place of great pleasure, saying that it's a well of living water flowing streams from Lebanon. And so we have the king coming in all of his glory, with all of that entourage, with that bed being propped up on poles, with all the image of the exodus. And now we have the picture of this bride and all of the imagery of the Garden of Eden and the Promised Land. 
And now we come to really the central part of the book, chapter 4, verse 16 to 5, 1. We read about the couple's joy. Up until now, sexual intimacy has been off limits. And the bride has warned the daughters of Jerusalem not to awaken love. But now everything is changing as the two are becoming one flesh. Now this portion of the Song of Songs is literally the center of the book. Various scholars have pointed that out. There are 111 lines up to this point, and 111 lines after 5.1, from 5.2 to 8.14. It, lit, it sits right in the middle of the book, and it is about the consummation of the wedding, sex and marriage. She says it like this, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow, together in the garden of love. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. You can hear, can't you, that the echoes of the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. This garden of love, that, uh, as she calls it. And you notice the shift from my garden to his garden. Let my beloved come to his garden. This is uh, uh, consistent with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, when he's talking about marriage, about giving pleasure to, the, to your spouse. She says, come and claim my garden for your delight. And the groom gladly complies. 5.1, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. You notice how the language is, is discreet and restrained. It conveys the joy of the moment without the vulgarity. And that's why this passage is so amazing in many ways, right? you got these luxuries. He, he talks about garden, myrrh, honey, wine, implying full pleasure. And it's all given in a sense that is appropriate and, and not vulgar, restrained, but beautiful. Notice he frequently calls her his, his bride. Verse 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. He uses the word my some 20 times that the two are becoming one flesh. And then the final Half of that verse, it's as if the, the groom shuts the door and his bride pulls down the shade and everyone pronounces the benediction. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. That's how they give the, their assent to the relationship. So that ends the text for this morning. How we may apply this. How may we apply this? Three final reflections. First of all, think about God's good design for marriage with me. We live in a show-all, do-all world. But Song of Songs is giving us a better vision of life, the way God intended it. It highlights covenantal marriage, companionship, and the joy of sex in that context. And God's good designs are not to stifle enjoyment, but to maximize it. This bride shows her body to no one but her husband alone, and she tells him how beautiful, he tells her how beautiful she is, and there's great satisfaction in this relationship. And what makes the, the relationship so good is that the song is not just about sex, it's about love and companionship. It's not just about their bodies, it's about their whole selves. It's about their whole being. That's why their joy is so amazing. Now, what does the passage say to those who are single? We've been trying to think about that along the way. It's an important question for everyone, obviously for those who are single. For those who are married, there may be a time in your life where you're single again. 
And for some, some of us were single a long time before we were married, and many of us have really close relationships with those who are single. So it's really not just a question for those who are single. It really is a question we should ask all of ourselves. I think three things I would point out. First of all, the sacrifice that you make in pursuing sexual purity glorifies God. It's a big deal. God would not give us this beautiful book of poetry to say anything other than that. He's saying this is how sacred and special your body is, how sacred marriage is. And though our holiness will always be imperfect, let me encourage you to commit your sexuality to God. Your sacrifices honor God. I can imagine you reading this book or even being in this study and being frustrated by it. And you could be frustrated for a number of reasons. You could be frustrated because the Bible only allows for heterosexual marriage. And this vision is of heterosexual marriage. Or you might be frustrated because of a terrible experience or experiences in your life. Or you may be uh, frustrated because only non-Christians seem to be interested in you. Here's the question I think we have to face. Can you be faithful through your frustrations? You can, on the one hand, acknowledge the frustration. The question is, can you be faithful in the frustration? That's what we call a sacrifice, right? It's a real sacrifice for you to offer up yourself to God like that, through the frustrations. And it is a beautiful thing to Him, a pleasing aroma to Him. Further, we know from the rest of Scripture that single people are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. If we need proof of this, we ought to just look to Jesus Christ. He lived a perfectly fulfilling life as a single person. He was tempted, Hebrews tells us, in all points, which includes that area as well, yet without sin. And now he stands ready, to, he can sympathize with us in our weakness and give us grace to be faithful. Many of the, uh, much of the world have, have, have been blessed, the church has been blessed by single leaders and single missionaries. One of my heroes in ministry is John Stott. He was single his whole life. Von Roberts, who I quote regularly, has been single his whole life. He's in his 50s. Many, many missionaries, we could go on. The Apostle Paul, not a bad list to be in. But I think this is the deepest thing that it's communicating. There is only one marriage that can truly satisfy. And that is a relationship with Jesus Christ. The Song of Songs is painting the picture of an ideal marriage. And ideal marriages don't exist. Faithful marriages can exist, but ideal marriages don't exist. So what is the ideal trying to do? I think it's meant to awaken in us a longing for another union. The longing for a better relationship. We want someone to talk to us like this. We want someone to protect us like this. We want to know the joy of a relationship like that. We want to know the holiness of a relationship like that. And that's what we have in Jesus Christ. So whether you're single or lonely, or single or lonely, single or married, maybe you're lonely and married, uh, <laughs> it works, doesn't it? Um, my wife's out of the country, so I'm, I'm married and lonely right now. Um, it's only Jesus that can satisfy those deep longings in our soul. Even if you have a great marriage, you need something more. You need Jesus. Secondly, this passage recalls to us the bride of Christ. The husband calls his wife beautiful. He says that she's flawless. Now, she's not flawless, but it makes us want a flawless bride, 
Oh, if we could have a flawless bride, wouldn't that be something? And this longing is also satisfied in this picture of Christ and His bride. God's love for us in Christ makes us flawless. There is a perfect bride because the blood of Christ has cleansed us. Our divine bridegroom is committed, as Paul says, to make his bride holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word, and that he will present the church to himself without spot or wrinkle, so that he can look at his bride and say that she is beautiful, the bride of Christ. And that, of course, is related thirdly to the coming of Christ. All of our longings are fulfilled in Jesus Christ this morning, truly, and they will be satisfied in Jesus Christ fully when he returns. Solomon coming up from the wilderness with his 60 mighty men and all of that bling would have been awe-inspiring to see. But it pales in comparison to the day in which one greater than Solomon splits the clouds and returns in power and glory with his holy angels. We're longing to see that. We can tell these people who are looking at Solomon, you ain't seen nothing yet. All of history is moving to this great union. As we read in the parable in Matthew 25, here is the bridegroom, go out to meet him. So our church, it's my pleasure to remind you this morning that our king is coming. He's coming soon. He's coming in glory. He's not coming up from the wilderness, but descending from heaven. And on his head will be many diadems, and he will be declared the king of kings and the lord of lords. The armies of heaven will accompany him, and we will enjoy paradise with him. We will have nothing to fear. We will be secure forever. Jesus will have his bride. And because of his love, he looks to us this morning and he says, you are beautiful, my beloved. You are very beautiful. And we get to behold the king in all of his beauty. As we sing sometimes around here, when we arrive at eternity's shore, where death is just a memory and tears are no more, we'll enter in as the wedding bells ring. Your bride will come together and we'll sing. You're beautiful. And that's the royal wedding that we're waiting for and we will experience by faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this marvelous picture of marriage and the amazing promise we have in the gospel. May we never get over the wonder of our relationship with Christ and may we never seek satisfaction, ultimate satisfaction, fulfillment, meaning, joy, peace, somewhere other than our Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you did for your bride. We celebrate that now in the Lord's Supper. May we never get over the wonder of your love. We pray this in your good name. Amen.